This evening, instead of teaching on Joseph, the more I thought about it and prayed about it, I thought instead what I'd like to do is kind of repeat some things that I taught at the pastor's conference in Duluth recently, but I'm gearing in more for our congregation, as it were. And it's on the subject of, of clarifying Romans 10, 9, and 10, repaving the Romans' road. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. How many of you have heard these verses at the close of a church service, inviting people to come forward and say the sinner's prayer and be saved? <laughs> that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Have you heard that before? Very common to hear that. If you were to ask the average person in the pulpit or pew, do you know the context of Romans 10, 9, and 10? They would look at you like a deer in the headlight because they don't know it. And then on the heels of Romans 10, 9, and 10, the preacher quotes Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And by the time you're done with that, you are feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to come forward, say the sinner's prayer, or make some kind of public confession of Christ. You know, I talked to a friend of mine today, and he said that his mother was told that she was not saved when she trusted in Christ until she came forward and confessed it. And dear saints, do you know what Revelation 3.20, Matthew 24.13, John 15.6, James 2.20, Romans 10.9 and 10, and a score of other verses all have in common? They are normally wrenched out of their context, totally misunderstood and misused by the evangelist or preacher who should be playing the Beatles in the background as he twists and shouts because he has done chubby checker hermeneutics. Let's twist again like we did last sermon. I mean summer. And there are very few preachers that I know personally, if any, who deliberately confuse the gospel. But they do, out of ignorance or out of tradition or out of arrogance, thinking they know better than God how to draw the crowd and seal the deal, as it were. Romans 10, 9 and 10 has been called by one Bible teacher the most abused passage in the Bible. In addition, it's become commonplace to your preachers today say, salvation is as simple as A, B, C. First, you need to admit that you are a sinner. Next, you need to believe that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. And then, C, you need to confess that Jesus is the Lord and call upon him for salvation. Where do you think they get this from? Well, the closest way they get it from is from Romans 10, 9 through 13. But dear friends, I ask you, did the early church know how to evangelize? Well, of course they did. In fact, they were accused of turning the world upside down, when in reality, God used the preaching of the gospel to turn some in the world upside right. Do you know of any passage where Jesus Christ said, here are the three steps to salvation? Or do you know of any place where the apostles gave us the ABCs of salvation? Is that what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer when he asked that million-dollar question that every lost sinner needs to ask and get a correct answer for? Namely, what must I do to be saved? Did they say, listen to the ABCs? No, they did not. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice it's only the B. And while it's true that you have to understand the context of the gospel, that God is holy and we are sinful, the penalty for sin is death, you have to see a need to be saved, as did this jailer. 
There's only one condition. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no confess here. There's no call here. And when will the evangelical church get the gospel or the evangel right? When will the fundamental churches finally get the most fundamental issue right, namely the gospel? In fact, have you ever heard of the Romans Road? Romans 3.23, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, and instead of using a verse from the justification passage in the book of Romans, like Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They go several chapters later, and use Romans 10, 9 and 10. You see, dear friends, when this ABC step approach to salvation is preached, it's usually supported by Romans 10, 9 and 10. But what is the context of these verses? Are there one condition, two conditions, three conditions to be saved? What exactly is Romans 10, 9 and 10 saying? And what is it not saying? And we must be very clear on these matters, lest we twist this verse out of its context, as so many do. So let's begin reading in Romans chapter 9, actually, and verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now you've heard it said that a text without a context is a pretext so what is the general context of the book of Romans? There you have on your handout tonight, the general context is all about the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ and the gospel. It starts out how his righteousness is revealed through his just condemnation of all mankind. It moves from condemnation here to then justification, chapter 321 through 521. Then you've got sanctification, then you've got glorification, and then you've got God's righteousness revealed through Israel, and that's going to be where we're going to be at tonight. And then it ends with God's righteousness revealed through the church, chapters 12 through 16. But as we think of the specific context of Romans 9 through 11, Romans 9 addresses Israel's past national election by God's sovereignty, to be his chosen earthly administrators and the human channel by which the Messiah would come. We're dealing with national election here, not personal salvation election. In Romans 10, we then deal with Israel's present volitional rejection through unbelief of the gospel of grace. And yet God's ongoing universal offer of salvation. And then in Romans 11, we're back to Israel again. We're back actually in chapter 10. But in chapter 11, we're going to read about Israel's future national salvation and its fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to set up his kingdom on earth to his glory. And so when we're dealing with chapter 10, notice what are we dealing with? Israel's present volitional rejection through unbelief and yet God's ongoing universal offer of salvation. Now to get to chapter 10, I want to take a little bridge called chapter 9, verses 30 through 33, where we will see the assessment of why the Gentiles succeeded and Israel failed in the past to attain the righteousness of God. Now the reality, as it were, of this contrast is going to be set forth in verses 30 and 31. But keep in mind that the subject of justification before God is not a new topic in Romans. As Romans 3, 21 through 5, 11, or 21, depending where you cut it, have previously been addressed in much detail by the time the reader of Romans gets to this passage. But now Paul explains to us what went wrong when Jesus Christ came the first time 
to seeking to save that which was lost and to offer the long-promised kingdom on earth to Israel. So we begin in verse 30 by observing what shall we say then. He's going to make a little initial observation here. That Gentiles, and that's what this verse is about, those who are not Jews, who did not pursue, and this is in the active voice, they didn't willingly or actively pursue or seek what? Righteousness. And throughout Romans, the righteousness of God is dealing with justification, being declared righteous before God. It's not dealing with sanctification. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? And that word have attained, kata lambano, means to lay hold of, to attain, to possess something. So they weren't looking for righteousness, but they ended up possessing it. Even the righteousness of faith. And that word faith is pistis, that's the noun form. Pistul is the verb form. And in doing so, this will be repeated over and over again in this section. You know, as we think of Gentiles who have attained righteousness, people like Abraham, Rahab, the Ninevites, the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, or the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, or the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, they were not pursuing the righteousness of God by the law, but they still attained it. Why? By simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing. Now watch the contrast of these Gentiles with the Jew. Verse 31 but introduces the contrast. In contrast to the Gentiles, Israel. And I want you to notice, he doesn't say the Jews here. He uses the national term, referring to them as a collective unit of many individuals. But Israel, who were pursuing the law of righteousness. Now if you compare verse 31 with verse 30, you will see that the phrase, the law, is added. The, the Gentiles were pursuing righteousness, but here we see this addition. The Jews were pursuing the law of, and this could be better translated for, righteousness. They were trying through efforts to keep the law to obtain the righteousness of God, a right standing before God that would enable them one day to stand favorably in the presence of God. And what was the result? They have not attained to the law of righteousness. And that word attain the second time is a little different than the first time, and it carries more the sense of achievement. The first one carries the idea of possession. This one is a sense of achievement. Because you see, dear friends, when you try to be saved by keeping the law, you are earning it. You're working for it. You're trying to achieve this. And what a contrast. Why did Israel not achieve the righteousness of God? Well, it's because, as some Calvinists falsely teach, God ordained some of to eternal life and others to damnation before they were born, right? Wrong. Well, because God did not regenerate them to give them the gift of faith, but still condemn them for their unbelief, right? Wrong. Well, what about because they were not the elect and they had no choice in the matter, right? Wrong. Then why did they not attain to righteousness? The answer is found in the very next verse, and in doing so, we will see three reasons why. Reason number one, because they, namely Israel as a nation, though some individuals did, did not seek it by faith. That's reason number one. But in contrast, how did they seek it? As it were, by the works of the law, which is inconsistent with faith, but to him that worketh not but believes. For if it's of works, then it's not of grace. If it's of grace, then it's not of works. Romans 11.6, and the only thing consistent with grace is faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And thirdly, for they, namely Israel, stumble at the stumbling stone. This is an obstacle that one trips over, kind of like Jack Henke here two Sundays ago. He was walking over there. The next thing we heard is, boom. I don't know what he tripped over, but he did the untriumphal entry. He stumbled. 
he stumbled. And you see, that generation of Jews that were living, not only before the Lord Jesus came, but during that time, they stumbled. Now, there were some who did respond. We know that from John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He, Jesus Christ, came to his own, technically his own creation, and his own, his own people did not receive him. There's a little nuance in the Greek that indicates that interpretation. But as many as received him, so there were some that did, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Notice the way you receive is you believe. And I got a phone call a few years ago from a man who worked fair evangelism and was given by someone my booklet on seven reasons not to ask Jesus into his heart. And in doing so, he read the booklet and he calls me and he says, now if I understand correctly what you're saying, you're saying that when you believe, you receive. And I said, well, that's what the verse says. He says, well, in our form of evangelism, we think receiving is by faith and then you have to call on him to receive, to be saved. And they said, well, then there would be two conditions, and the Bible makes it clear there's only one. And according to this verse, when you receive Christ is when you believe in him. And I say that because I remember being down in El Salvador. I had a translator with me, and he was not a man from our church, but he was part of New Tribe's mission. He had been in Bolivia. And in doing so, when I would say, you need to put your faith in Christ, he would translate this, you need to accept Christ. Now, it's true, you do need to accept Christ. But he wasn't saying by faith like I was. And you see, in the mind of many of those people, to accept Christ means you come forward, say the sinner's prayer. Raise your hand, pray a prayer, do whatever. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, if you would ask the apostles, have you ever gone forward, they'd say, what are you talking about? Because where did the early church meet? Usually in houses they didn't go forward. There was no sinner's prayer. I've had people say, do you have people say the sinner's prayer? I said, I'll be glad to do it. Can you show me where it is? And they'll say, well, it's not in the Bible. And I said, you want me to do something that's not in the Bible? But some did receive him. So what was the stumbling block? the rock of offense, as it is written. And now he quotes Isaiah. And by the way, we should be able to support our beliefs from the Bible. If we can't support it from the Bible, get rid of it. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16, in chapter 8, verse 14. Behold, I, in reference to God, lay in Zion. And Zion is Jerusalem. A stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Now that word offense is used in 1 Corinthians 1.22. We read in verse 21, For since the wisdom of, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But what do we do? <clears throat> we preach Christ crucified. So you know who to put your trust in. To the Jews, what? A stumbling block. And to the Greeks, what? Foolishness. Scandalon is where we get the word scandalous. Foolishness is where we get the word moron. You see, to think that their Messiah hung on a cross was scandalous to them. Because they did not know their Bibles well. For cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. They knew that. What they didn't understand is that he was hanging on the tree for them. He was paying for their sins. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised for our <laughs> sins, per se. Isaiah 53. And then, so they stumbled at that, but that's not all. And whoever, whether Jew or Gentile, singular, believes. Here's where they stumbled too. They stumbled at the fact that you receive this as a gift by simple faith in which you choose to believe, trust, or rely on. They stumbled at the Messiah, and they stumbled at the gospel simplicity. By the way, many people do that yet today. The woods are filled with people who have faith in Christ plus instead of faith in Christ alone. 
Whoever believes, now notice this, on a pea, resting upon, like sitting on a chair, him. Notice the stumbling block is a him, a person. Their promised Messiah, Yeshua, was their Christ or Messiah. We know that from 1 Peter 2.8. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. Because God always fulfills his promises, faith in Christ will always result in God fulfilling exactly what he has promised. You know where we find the first mention of righteous in the Bible? It's in Genesis 7.1. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Do you know where the first place we find the word grace in the Bible? Just before that, Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace, not earned grace, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But we are not told till Genesis 15 and verse 6 how a sinner can be declared righteous by God. For in Genesis 15, 6 we read, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted or reckoned it to him as righteousness. Notice, the condition is to believe the Lord is the object and nothing else and nothing more. Is it that simple? Yes. Who did Abraham believe? In the Lord. No mention of confession, no mention of surrender, no mention of tithing, no mention of filling in the blank. Just simple faith in the only Savior God ever provided, the Lord. Now, as a pastor, allow me to be pastoral and make some applications to you and myself as we work our way through this passage. Application number one. Romans 9 emphasizes the sovereignty of God in Israel's past national election, while Romans 9.30 through 10.21 will emphasize the human responsibility and volitional choices of man in Israel's past and present rejection. Keep both eyes open when reading the scriptures. Yes, God did choose Israel as a nation, but we're seeing in this passage individual response to the revelation that was given can either be responded to or rejected, and you do have a choice in the matter. But keep both eyes open. The Calvinist tends to have one eye open, the Arminian on the other eye open, and frankly, you should have them both open. Application number two. God's plan of salvation through imputed righteousness has always been by God's grace through faith alone in the Lord alone, never by good works or the works of the law. Two illustrations are given in Romans chapter 4. The first is Abraham. We've read about it in Genesis 15, 6. The second is David in Psalm 32. And what's interesting about David is that He's quoted in Romans 4, and this is his confession of sin with Bathsheba. And he's so thankful that righteousness was imputed to him, not earned by him, because he knew he did not deserve the righteousness of God. You see, sometimes people falsely claim that dispensationalists teach two ways of salvation. In the Old Testament, under law, people are saved by keeping the law of Moses. Not true. Never true. And in the New Testament, the grace people are saved by faith alone in the Lord alone. We have just seen from the verses quoted that justification has always been the same. Now, some hyper-dispensationalists or mid-acts dispensationalists, as they call themselves, teach this, but it's not true. It's true that due to progressive revelation, we now know that the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. God who became sinless man. We know that he died for our sins and rose again, but the condition for salvation has never changed over the ages. So we've examined how the Gentiles obtained righteousness and how the Jews did not. So is God done with Israel? Romans 11 will scream, No, God forbid, certainly not. Is salvation still available to Israel? Chapter 10 will yell out, yes. But they have to be willing to respond by faith in Christ as presented in the gospel. So beginning in verse 1, we now move from the assessment to the aspiration. In prayer by Paul, 
for Israel's still available salvation. And notice how the verse begins with the word brethren. Now, who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to the believers in Rome. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they now were brethren, part of the family of God, part of the body of Christ. And this information was very needed and informative for both groups because the Jewish believers needed to understand that God's plan for Israel has been postponed, not canceled. The Gentile believers probably didn't have a clue and needed to learn a lot of things regarding God's plan of the ages. So what is it you want to say to these brethren? Well, I want you to know, Paul writes, that my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And the word for there is the Greek word huper. It means on behalf of Israel. And notice in this section alone how many times the word Israel is found. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that. See, the content of his desire nationally and his prayer personally is that they, Israel, may be saved. Now, it's notice, may be saved looks like a verb, but in the Greek it's actually ice, which is a preposition followed by a noun, soteria, where we get the word soteriology. It's literally, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they instead of maybe save, that I'm praying that they for salvation. For salvation. You see, while Jesus Christ offered to set up the kingdom, was offered but rejected in his first coming, that offer was taken temporarily off the table after the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he then predicts, I will build my church, and that's what he's doing today. His offer of personal salvation for lost sinners remains as he died for all and all their sins, past, present, and future, and he rose again. And this is why Paul is praying that these individuals would be saved. And by the way, the righteousness of God and the word saved here are connected. He's dealing with the issue of justification. Now, is this personal or national salvation? And I propose that it's both. Apart from individual salvation, you cannot have national salvation. On the other hand, if a million Jews tomorrow put their faith in Jesus as the Christ, believing he died for their sins and rose again, the kingdom still would not come. Because we're in the church age. And so they could be saved individually, but the nation will not be saved. Until they turn to the Lord, we know, in the tribulation period to come. So that Romans 11, verse 26 tells us, one day as a nation, all Israel will be saved. Nationally. From their enemies, and namely the armies of the Antichrist, who want to destroy them. And it's kind of interesting, in light of what we're seeing with the Israel-Hamas war going on. A sneak preview, as it were, of what it's going to be like. But when... They turn to the Lord at that end of the tribulation period. It won't be just Hamas. It'll be the Antichrist running the armies of the world, all bearing down on little Israel. And they know there's no way out of here. And they finally believe in Jesus Christ. They confess him as Lord. And they will call upon him to deliver them. And we know from Joel 2.32 that he will do just that. He will do it by personally coming back. And that's what we're going to be studying about in our upcoming conference here a week from this weekend. So observe that Paul directly connects again the righteousness of God and justification and salvation together. Now let me give you some applications in light of verse 1. We see from the example of Paul the validity of persistent prayer for the salvation of others, even for those who have personally rejected the message don't underestimate the grace of God and the power of prayer. You know, prayer is a very important aspect of evangelism, whether it's asking God to open doors, give boldness, make the gospel clear as we ought, and so forth. And in God's sovereign plan, he builds into it our prayers for both the saved and the lost, and they make a difference as the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Maybe you've heard me say before, but the story is told of an evangelistic church on this side of town and a Calvinistic church on this side of town. 
And someone who was observing both churches said, isn't it funny that God's electing a lot more people over there than over here? You know, I love what Spurgeon once said. He said something to the effect, God save you, elect, and then elect a bunch more. I mean, that should be our heart's desire, and that's what Paul's is. Because you see, in Romans 9, 1 through 3, he's grieved because he knows many in Israel have not been saved, though God did have a remnant, and he will in the future as well. You know, do you have a passion for the lost? You know, my observation is Bible churches normally don't, but they oftentimes get the gospel right. And many times, Baptist churches do have a passion for the lost, but they often get the gospel wrong. And some churches are guilty of both. By God's grace, we at Grace and Truth Bible Church want to have a passion for the lost and a clear gospel, as well as a desire for the saved to get established and encouraged in their spiritual growth. And don't give up on people. God is still working. You know, I was talking to John Morin here the other day, and his 77-year-old sister who had been close to the gospel just got saved a few months ago. You just never know. And you see, that's exactly what's happening. It reminds me of the story that happened at the fair the very first night this year, where Dave Howard had his back to some lady who had st st stepped up, saw the banner, John 360 illustrated, come take the survey, sits down. No one's paying attention to her. She taps Dave and says, I'm here to take the survey. Come lead me to Christ, you know. Uh, she didn't say that, but you get the point. So he begins to give the survey. She has 25% chance of going to heaven. By the time she's done, she's 100% sure it's all because of Jesus Christ. And she says, I've been looking for this all my life. And God is not willing that any should perish. This is why I encourage you to personally witness. This is why we have the Smiley's Outreach and Fair Evangelism and so forth, because the answer to man's greatest need is not Christian political activism. And I bleed red, white, and blue, and I feel very strongly about many things in our country. But you see, what the real need is evangelism. People need to be saved, and then believers need to become established in the faith via sound grace doctrine and encourage or exhort it through mutual fellowship. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. So we've seen the assessment of why the Gentiles succeeded and Israel failed. We've seen the aspiration in prayer by Paul for Israel's still available salvation. Now this leads us to the analysis and present rejection of the righteousness of God with Israel. What were the reasons for Israel's need for salvation? Why would Paul be praying for them? Now, this has already been touched on at the end of chapter 9, but we pick it up in chapter 10 and verse 2. For I bear them, namely the Israelites' witness, that they have presently a zeal for God. That was true with Paul before he was saved. Read Acts 22, 1-3, Galatians 1, 13-14, 1 Timothy 1, 13. So what was the problem? But their zeal was not according to knowledge. It wasn't in keeping with what the Word of God said. And that always, dear friends, is the bottom line. For they, the Israelites, being ignorant of God's righteousness. And that word ignorant really carries the idea of willingly ignorant. It's in the active voice. The Net Bible translates this ignoring ignoring the righteousness of God. And they seeking zealously in an attempt to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You see, the result of their unbelief in seeking to establish their own righteousness found in Jesus Christ is they have not submitted now, I say that because Paul knew very well before he was saved, and he said, in essence, if you have confidence in the flesh and your human achievements, I'll beat you hands down. And he gives us a list there in Romans 3, Philippians 3, 4 through 9. And yet he says, when it's all considered, I count it all but the King James, New King James says rubbish, 
I think the King James says dung. And again, with Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness and our filthy rags. Can you imagine standing before God? And he says, why should I let you in? And he says, well, look at my rags and look at my dung. And obviously, that will not result in entrance. What you need is a righteousness compatible with God's. A righteousness that's given as a gift. A righteousness you cannot earn. A righteousness by grace. A righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ alone. For not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So what can we learn from this? The difference between you possessing your own righteousness versus God's righteousness in Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. And you see, Satan has used this religious zeal to blind people from the truth of the gospel. He uses religion to do this. This zeal resulted in many Jews and Gentiles then and now rejecting God's gift of righteousness by faith. This zeal resulted in many Jews persecuting Christians. This righteousness, this uh, zealousness that's without knowledge resulted in them crucifying their Messiah. You know, at the conference in Duluth, Rich McCarroll gave the message after lunch one day on Romans 11, 1 through, I think, 13. And he explained a really good story about an opportunity he had to share the gospel to a, a whole gathering of Jews and why he loves Israel. He was invited to do this along with a Jewish rabbi, and one of the things he said is he had been coached by someone involved in ministry to the Jews. Do not say you're a Christian. Say you are a Gentile who has trusted in the Jewish Messiah. Now the reason he said that is because for many Jews, they think the Nazis were Christian. And we know what the Nazis did in the Holocaust. So he said, so don't do that. Don't say you're a Christian and don't say... Well, we love Israel because, and we want to bless Israel because as we bless you, we get blessed. They then feel like they just got used again by Gentiles. So don't do that either. And he talked about how he loves Israel because his Bible came from Jews. How his Savior was Jewish, who died for our sins and rose again. How such and such and such and such. And it went over very, very well. You know, what some Jewish individuals have come to understand is that the, quote, Christians that are truly their friends are dispensational Christians. Because we understand God has a plan for Israel yet versus those who believe in replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. Therefore, they have a concern about individual Jews, but not for the nation itself. And this is very problematic. So we've seen the reasons for Israel's need for salvation. Now we see the real issues in salvation. What are they? Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Notice, the issue isn't the law. The issue is Christ. He's the end. He's the purpose. He's the termination. He's the fulfillment. When you come to Christ, you come to the fact that you don't need the law for righteousness. To everyone who what? Simply believes. And notice again, this is in the active voice, which means you choose to do so. It's a participle, literally the believing one. And I say this because there are some who misunderstand Greek and they say, well, it's a present tense, therefore it requires ongoing faith. Not true. Not true. It simply is describing an individual who is a believer. Question, how many times do you have to believe before you're a believer? Question, how many times do you have to murder before you're a murderer? Just once. So this does not require ongoing faith. But notice again, one condition to believe, available to who? Everyone. And who is the object of faith? Christ. So again, let me make some applications here. You can always tell the true gospel versus the false gospel by looking where the spotlight is shining either on Christ alone or you. I've said this many times, and I repeat it again. All false gospels, they might start out with Christ, but then they put it right on you. And the true gospel is, what must they do to be saved? 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He died for your sins. And what they will do is they will inevitably turn that spotlight on you. And that's why if you notice here, and this is taken from Ron Shea's gospel booklet, notice all these things that you're hearing today. Say the sinner's prayer, something you must do. Give your heart to God, something you must do. It's not you giving your heart to God, it's God giving his life for you. Come forward and confess Christ, something you have to do. Repent and be baptized, something you have to do. Deny yourself, take your cross and follow Christ, something you have to do. Make a personal commitment, something you have to do. Ask Jesus in your heart. He comes in when you believe, something you have to do here, and so forth and so forth. Now, some people are like, hey, what's the big deal? Tell that the next time to your banker who gives you $100 instead of 1000 as he replies, it's only one zero. What's the big deal? Tell that to the surgeon when you hear him say, take out the liver, and you yell out, it's the spleen, and he remarks, spleen versus liver. What's the big deal? We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about someone's eternal destiny. No wonder Paul said in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Now I am not saying for a moment that if someone has done some of these things, they may not be saved. They could be. Someone who asked Jesus in their heart could be saved. But they didn't get saved because they asked Jesus in. They got saved because they put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. On the other hand, there are scores of people who have asked Jesus in their heart, and they still don't understand the gospel. And that's why they normally do it many times, because they're not sure that they're saved, because they haven't understood yet the gospel message. It's the gospel all about Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Said he was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so when the spotlight is on Jesus Christ and his finished work, it'll be salvation by faith alone. But when it's on you, it will include works to either obtain it, maintain it, or prove conclusively that you have it. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, you know, you keep reading stories in the paper about people who have these collector cars from years ago. And they have 57 miles on them. And they've been sitting in a garage. Could we conclude because they haven't used them, they must not have them? Should we conclude because they haven't used it, they don't really own it? Or should we conclude that they own it, but they just haven't used it? And the same is true with salvation. There are those who are saved but they haven't allowed it to impact their sanctification. But that doesn't mean they don't have it. If you have to have works to prove that you're saved, then you, what you're really saying is that no one can ultimately go to heaven unless they have works. And that's not what the Bible says. What about the person who gets saved five minutes before they die? What works did the thief on the cross have? And on and on we could go. You see, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The word know, oida, in the perfect tense means that you can know 100% that you have, present tense, eternal life. What's the condition? Simply to believe. In who? The name of the Son of God back here. And notice, these things have are written to you as God's guarantee. Any system of theology that does not give you 100% assurance that you're saved now and forever is wrong, according to the Word of God. So the focus of the gospel is not a church. It's not a ritual. It's not an experience. It's not a behavior. It's not anything you do for God. But on what Jesus Christ has done for you, it is finished. Now this leads us to verses 5 through 8 that deal with the availability and message of the righteousness of God contrasted. And once again, like good rabbinical form, we're going to see repetition by way of contrast. 
But did the Jews really have access to the gospel of grace? Was it available to them? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again. So as we think of this availability and message, first of all, we have the religious legal message and its availability. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. Now he's quoting Leviticus 18 verse 5. And notice the key word is does. He's going to quote this in Galatians as well. You want to have life through the law, then you have to do it. What's the problem with this approach? Well, the law was never designed to give you life. Romans 3, 19 and 20, now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice, no flesh justified in God's sight by the law. Instead, you have the knowledge of sin. You see that you've sinned, you've lied, you've coveted, you've disobeyed your parents, you use the Lord's name in vain, and so forth and so forth. Notice what Galatians 3 says. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. 100% obedience to 100% of the law, 100% of the time. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith three times that's stated in the New Testament. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Though Notice again, he quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5. And though the law is holy, just, and good, Romans 7, 12, never designed by God to be a ladder, but a scale, a mirror, and a rule of life for Israel. You see, as you think of a mirror, think of going into the carnival or whatever, and you get in the house of mirrors, and everywhere you look, what do you see? You know what the law keeps saying? Guilty, guilty, guilty. You broke the law here, there, and there, and there, and there, and there, and there. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And you see, what this was designed to do was to drive us to Christ. To see that we could not save ourselves, that we needed a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would put our trust in him. As Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that simply believes. So we see the religious legal message and its availability. Now this again is contrasted with the grace, faith message and its ability. Verse 6, but in contrast to the law, the righteousness of faith in Christ, based on the scriptures, also written by Moses, he's going to quote Moses here again, from Deuteronomy 30, speaks in this way. Now notice he says the righteousness of faith. He doesn't say the righteousness of saving faith. Whereas this non-saving faith. You know why he doesn't do that? Because faith is faith. The issue is always your object of faith, who, who or what you're trusting to save you. When you trust in the Savior, he saves you. When you don't trust in him alone, he doesn't save you. We must remember salvation is not a reward for the righteous, for there are none. No, not one. But a gift for the guilty, paid in full by Christ, offered by God's love and received by childlike faith in Jesus Christ, period. So do not say in your heart, alluding to Deuteronomy 9 and verse 4, who will ascend into heaven? <laughs> in context, if you read Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verse 12. The context is to find out God's will. Do you have to ascend into heaven to find out God's will? And the answer is no. That is to bring Christ down from above. He is the Logos. He is the one who has come to provide salvation. He is indeed. If he comes from heaven, it must mean he is God. And then... He says, or do not say in your heart, who will ascend into the abyss? In other words, you don't need to plumb the depth of the deepest sea to find God's will, quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 13. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. 
underscoring his death and resurrection, which were already complete and accepted by God. So what is Paul's point here? His point is, the message God has given regarding his will related to the gospel is available and accessible. But observe carefully what Paul took the liberty to change in the quotation. He replaced the word commandment law with Christ. He's saying, not that the commandment is available, but that Christ is available. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, you will find four times the word do, do, do three times, I'm sorry. But notice, no mention of do in Romans 10, 6, and 7. But instead, it's been replaced by the word Christ, what's already been done. So now in verse 8, he says, but what does it, the message of faith, say? The word. Now, the word here is the Greek word rima. It's not logos. Rima is usually used of a specific spoken message. And he says this message of God's will as it relates to the gospel is near you. You say, really, how near is it? Well, it's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. Now, if something's in your mouth, what have you said to your kids when they have food in their mouth? You need to swallow that. And it's near enough. It's right there. And then you swallow it. It goes from there down. And that's what his point is. How near is it? It's near enough that you can swallow it. And as a result of it going down, it then can come back up in a positive way and confessing it, as we're going to see. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's a little Jewish idiom. It's in your mouth, so you can swallow it, and you can believe it in your heart. That is the word rima of faith in Christ alone, which we preach. Now, the Greek word is caruso, and it means to proclaim as a sent herald. One of the problems we have today is there are people heralding the gospel who have not really been sent, or they really aren't listening to the message they are to be preaching. God has used his heralds to make the gospel known, Paul says. It's accessible to all, and especially to the Jews. In addition, let me point out, Paul changed that you might do it, Romans 30, verse 14, to the word of faith. Not asking you to do something, asking you to believe in someone.